Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Hey, let me give you a little update on Kathy's situation. Uh, We sent out a link on Friday, I believe it was, and uh, you can listen, uh, you could have listened to the closing arguments um, that the attorneys were making. Um, So they've they've finished their arguments. Now it's up to the judge to decide what they're going to do. Um, And so now you need to be praying for wisdom for this judge, and you need to be praying for uh, his ability to, if he's going to side, obviously, and I think the case is, is, is as easy as it comes, she should have the religious freedom to do what she wants to do. Um, if he sides with her, he will go under tremendous persecution because of that. And what, what we need to be praying about is that that doesn't affect his decision that the pressure from the LGBT community and the rest of society doesn't put that kind of pressure on the judge where they just cave. Now, I, you know, the guy's supposed to be a Christian. We'll see. That doesn't mean anything today. Uh, I don't care. Um, you've seen Supreme Court justices cave into a lot of issues. Uh, um, and so just because they're conservative, just because they're, they say they're Christian, doesn't mean that they can't fold to the pressure that's being put on them. So be praying for that judge in that situation. Um, this is just the beginning, by the way. This doesn't end it. If he makes a decision, either which way, it's gonna be appealed and it's gonna continue to go on. It's not an end. This thing could go all the way to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court didn't deal with the issue when they had the Colorado Baker. Remember him from Masterpiece uh, Bakeries? The court uh, decided in his favor because uh, the state proved to be hostile to him. And so that's how he won, is based on the hostility of the state. And, and, but the, the issue never was decided. Does a person have the right uh, as a, uh, uh, in, a, in their religious beliefs to say, I will not serve somebody because it violates my religious beliefs? This is huge. So it probably will be appealed either which way. It'll probably go as far as it can. So we have not seen the end of it. You've only seen the beginning of it, actually. Uh, and it's, it's a nightmare, man. I, I was in touch with Kathy all through the week and just checking on them. The emotional, uh, the emotional toil that they have to go through uh, in these kinds of situations... I, I, I could see why people wouldn't do it. It's ridiculous what the state attorneys put you through and the kind of questions they put you through. And then it's not anything I would, I would uh, want to go through myself. But uh, they have the strength. The Lord's given them the strength to hang on. But it's, it's a fight for their life. Um, they might lose their business. Um, and just like I, I said at, at the rally... Um, this is what's, what's kind of concerning me. And I think it should concern you too. There's not a lot of people out there supporting her anymore. Um, and this is an issue that's gonna come to every Christian, whether you like it or not, or whether you can ex- have your religious freedoms. So when you see a lack of support from the churches, I mean, every church in town should have been there. Every one of them. Um, 
and realizing that um, she loses her freedom, eventually you're going to lose yours, and it's going to be when you decide you're not going to marry gays. That's when they're going to come after the churches. And what are the churches going to do? They'll probably cave, because if they're, they won't support Kathy, then when it comes to their door, they're going to cave as well. So this is our concern in the, in the community, but it's, it's nationwide. I mean, 54% of Christians claim that, uh, and this is according to Pew Research, 54% of Christians accept gay marriage. So we're in the minority now. And when you see a case like this, it, it, it's just, I guess it's just the reality of the great apostasy is what I'm saying. It's just the reality of things. But um, continue to lift her up in prayer understand there's not going to be a lot of people standing with us, standing with her, standing on all these issues. They're just going to cave on every issue, and you're just going to have to get used to it. Uh, it's very disappointing to see it. Um, these guys that say they love Jesus and these pastors that say that, uh, you know, they're going to stand for the Bible and we're going to teach the Bible, then where are you? Put your money where your mouth is. If you're not going to support this issue, what issue are you going to support? Oh, your nickels and no, we just want to offend anybody because we want to evangelize everybody. I've heard that a thousand times. It's a cover-up for cowardness. That's what it is. That's all it is. And as we saw these, see these churches here locally just drop by the wayside, uh, just expect it. Just expect it that we'll be standing with a very few minority Christians that actually get this. So the fight's still going on. The fight's happening and continue to lift Kathy and Mike up in this situation because this is what the media doesn't tell you. They get death threats. The LGBT mafia is a mafia. And I'm not talking about individuals that are lesbian or gay. I'm talking about the agenda of the LGBT, the movement. The death threats and, and, and the por pornographic things that they say to Kathy and stuff, these truly come from the pit of hell. They're demonic. Wanting to kill her and your uh, family and this and that. Oh, I thought they were supposed to be uh, flying the rainbow flag. I'm peaceful. We're peaceful. No, they remind me of the sodomites in Genesis 19 that are banging down the door wanting to have sex with the two angels that Lot had. That's what they remind me of. Bulls rushing through to have what they want. And I ain't changing my tune on that because I, when you see the death threats on her and all she did is says that, that goes against my religious beliefs, here's another person that would bake it. She accommodated them, but no, they want to push the issue. They want to shove their modus operandi, shove their LGBT stuff in our face have us accept it and bow a knee to it. And God bless Kathy, she's not. And neither are we, and neither are you. So we'll continue to fight. And so that brings us to where we're at uh, in my Father's Day message, right? To where uh, I had to break this thing up in three parts of David and Goliath. I thought I could get through it, but no way. And, and so we're gonna finish it up today in 1 Samuel, and then we'll get back to Daniel. But... Talking about a spiritual fight that we're in, Kathy's in, that's exactly, you know, apropos for what we're doing. We are in a spiritual battle. It's getting hard. We're finding out we have very few people with us in the trenches, but God bless the ones in the trenches. 
But the issue that we're facing is it's a spiritual battle. So what's behind the attorneys for Kathy uh, that, that coming after her from the state? What's behind the LGBT community? What's behind all of this? It's demonic. It's satanic. That's, what's, that's, that's the problem. So the only way you can fight this kind of war, and we're called to fight it, not sit on the stands and watch this happen, is you got to use the spiritual ways that God has provided. And what you're seeing with David and Goliath is a warrior, spiritual warrior, knowing how to use the proper tools in a spiritual battle. Now, just kind of refresh our minds, Goliath is a Nephilim. He's a hybrid. He is a typology for the Antichrist, right? David is a typology for the Messiah. And so if you remember those things, that'll keep us uh, on track here a little bit. Um, the armies have been at a standstill for at least 40 days, time of testing. No one will go into the Valley of Elah, the Valley of Fear, because they are afraid. They're afraid of losing, uh, losing their lives. So no one will go in the, ball- the battle, not even Saul, Saul the king, who's nothing but a coward. So David sees this. David's been trained as a young man to just to be a shepherd, but he knows how to kill animals to protect sheep. And that's going to lend support for David to fight Goliath. And so when David was growing up, he learned spiritual lessons all alone watching those sheep. What you'll see about leadership in the Bible is many of the leaders in the Bible were trained as shepherds. Shepherding is one of the key factors in leadership because you have to take care of people, you're responsible, and you have to know how to fight off the enemies. It's a very good training ground for how God prepares his leaders. Anyway, The standoff is happening. David sees the fight. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And David's going to act now. Now, the idea how David acts, again, like I tried to um, remind us last time, is this is not a story of an underdog like Rocky Balboa who's going to fight Ivan Drago in Rocky IV, okay? It's not that story. Um, What David's what prompts David is his faith. It's faith alone that prompts David to fight Goliath because according to scripture, God will empower the Israeli soldiers against any foe and supernaturally and he already has the command to drive them out of the land. So he's working upon biblical principles so he knows exactly what to do. David doesn't even need to pray about it. He knows the biblical principles so well. He says, this is exactly what we need to do. Let's do it. Let's take this guy out, okay? So that's where we we left off of David getting ready to go in to this fight. So I wanna pick up on that and show you the actual fight, but then show you the typology and how it relates to Jesus Christ, okay? So we'll start uh, by, by saying this. We are in a war. We know we are, and it's getting worse um, the child grooming is, is really at an all-time high. And this is what should really rile everybody up. And so this, is ha- this happened in England, in Britain, and uh, two mothers are in there, and all of a sudden, you know, they bring in this, uh, this uh, transvestite, they bring in this, this uh, uh, what do you want to, what are they called, uh, drag queens, whatever, to do story hour in, the, in the, the library. So these two moms, and you're gonna see them, fight against this. This, what, this is what needs to happen when they child groom 
our children. The point about that is there's people that have enough guts to say enough. You're grooming our kids and you're nothing but pedo protectors. And you hear them say that? You're pedophilers and you're protecting those who want to sexualize our kids. Dude, this is beyond Sodom and Gomorrah, way beyond, okay? You have to understand. So what we're trying to emulate is somebody that's willing to fight back. Someone that's willing to push back. And those two women, God bless them. They had their own kids there, and then some dude in a rainbow costume, looks like a clown, shows up and starts grooming the kids. That's, that's evil. This is the kind of battle we're in. These are the Goliaths. Here's an interesting, uh, another story to tell you what kind of spiritual battle we're in. They had this AI program, and they programmed what, 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 is, what do humans look like uh, in the last days. And the AI program predicted that these would be the last selfies on earth and what, they would, what humans would look like. It looks like Revelation chapter 9. It, lo- it looks like the tribulation period when people are zombied out wanting to die and God doesn't allow them to die. Isn't that weird that the AI decided that's what humans will look like in the near future? And I want to say, you know what? You might be on to something because the tribulation is not too far away. That's exactly what is described in the book of Revelation. Huh, interesting. I don't know if it'll wake anyone up. We continue to give $54 billion in aid to, uh, from the U.S. with no accountability to the Ukraine, by the way. Okay? We're suffering at the gas pumps, and we keep pumping money into this place. Much of the money now has fallen to Ukrainian oligarchs, not the people. 
okay? And, if, and the puppet master, or sorry, the, the puppet who's being ran by the puppet masters, which is Zelensky, he's fighting a proxy war for the globalists. That's what this has evidenced itself out. And now, it, since he's fighting this war, he has time to pose with his wife on Vogue magazine, okay? That's a picture of Vogue magazine of them. He, let me tell you what's going on. The globalists are prop, propping up a proxy war against Russia, and we're part of it. And we're giving them aid like there's no tomorrow. $54 billion. I think we could use that here instead of fighting a proxy war with Russia from the one-worlders. But, you know, we're, 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 we're hook, line, and sinker in with the one-worlders. This guy, he's... The oligarchs of Ukraine and this president is so corrupt. You, I don't even know where to begin. So here's my thing. What, what does that mean? It, this, uh, this is spiritual because the one-worlders are trying to do this proxy war to get rid of Russia and deal with them so they can usher in a global government. That's what this is about. And that's why we're giving so much aid. We are contributing now to the global agenda the globalist uh, uh, government. That's when you know you're in evil times. Now you then you have the, the World Health Organization last week declares monkeypox a global health emergency. What else are they gonna do? They gotta shut us down? Did they tell you that 99% of the people that monkeypox are gay men? That gay men are the ones passing this around? They didn't tell you that, did they? New York yesterday did a state of emergency for the state of New York for a disease that's passed through by gay men. No one wants to talk about that. They just want to claim a pandemic. What do they want to use it for? Again, more control, uh, more, you know, putting more restrictions on us. That's the evidence that we're in a battle, spiritual battle. So how do we do this? Well, 2 Corinthians says this, for we, though we walk in flesh, we do not war against according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Strongholds are lies in people's heads, okay? Casting down arguments, the stupidity of the arguments that, that inflation's good for us, gas prices are good for us because it helps us go on green energy. What person thinks like that? Romans 1 right? And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, like saying, we're going to destroy the planet by our carbon emissions. God's the creator. He controls it. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish. Look what it says. Punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. By you being obedient, Paul is saying, and doing the right thing, it restrains evil. It punishes evil by you doing the right thing where you're at. That's what he's referring to, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. It doesn't mean that you go out and punish people. It just means that when you live a righteous life, it in effect holds them back. And it, it penalizes them for the nonsense they're doing. But there's not enough people being obedient to hold it back in which would punish a person for acting crazy, right? So if you don't have enough people in a society that are acting right, 
then the craziness is allowed. And that's what starts happening. That's why we have so much criminal activity. That's why we have so much homeless. It's because they are allowing it to happen. Anyway, let's go to, let's go to David. So again, we're in the middle of this story. So David says to Saul, I'm ready to fight. Let's go. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor and put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. And why is that significant? The significance in this is is the idea that if you're going to fight a spiritual battle, you can't wear the world's armor. Now, what do I mean by that? Saul was a worldly king. That's why they picked him, okay? And he was head above shoulders. He looked apart. He looked great. But he was nothing but a Gavin Newsom, really. That's all he was. So he was an impotent uh, authority. So what Saul always does is he always picks the world's way of acting. So when he picks this armor for himself to wear and then gives it to David, the armor is a symbol of the world's way of fighting, a conventional way of fighting. What David understands is that, wait a second, I don't need all of this to fight a spiritual battle. I need spiritual weapons to fight this battle. Your armor, the worldly armor, is of no use to fight Goliath. David can't go hand-to-hand combat with him. Goliath's a Nephilim. He's a giant. He can't fight him. So he's going to have to use God's ways. And God's ways are spiritual. They're invisible. You can't see them, but they're powerful and they do work. So that's the that's a first key. When we're fighting this battle, do not use the ways of the world. What do you mean by that, Brandon? Well, here's a few things. The ends do not justify the means. In the biblical world, the biblical armor, the means and the ends must be justified. That's number one. Number two, power doesn't always make right. That's how the world thinks. Power makes right. In the world, money gives you the ability to have power, not in God's way. And all, that's the way people play the game. Money, power, influence, all this other stuff, and manipulation, bribing people, paying people off, extorting people. That's how people achieve things in this world. And God says, don't go that direction when you fight this war. Our, our anger from what they're doing to our kids tempts us to retaliate and seek revenge. But if you do, that is the way the world operates. The world operates on revenge tactics. You can't. You have to use the ways God gave you. So that's what we're talking about here. So what is David going to be, one of the things we we see uh, in this spiritual battle that Paul brings in, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, what does that mean? 
our power doesn't come from our own imagination or how we can outthink the opponent or how we can outthink Satan or because you can't. You're not going to be able to outthink Satan, nor are you going to outthink demons. They're the ones controlling these people, okay? You have to see past the person to the demonic level. And you and I are not smart enough for any fallen angel. We're not. They're way smarter than us, intelligent-wise. It's an evil intelligence, but they're way intelligent. So the only thing you can do is be strong in the Lord. Where do you get your strength? In the Lord and his power. So the idea here is this. You and I must rely on the Lord's power to deal with evil. That's how you function. And the key in all of this is to yield to that power. Don't take matters into your own hands, but to yield to that power and let him use you through the situation. Let his power take over. That is a key thing because too many times we want to take matters into our own hands. Now, again, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean being passive. This means, means being active do all you can and your responsibility, but at some point it's gonna stop and it's bigger than you and what you can do and you have to give that to God and he will take care of the rest of it. He can change things any way he wants because of his power. Then Paul will say, this is part of the armor issue, that you have a responsibility the weapon, the armor, the weapons that God gives you are invisible. They come from him, but they're very powerful. And they're meant for protection. So Paul will say in Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God. Now the whole armor of God is spelled out by him, but it comes from the Old Testament. Notice it says put on, means you're responsible for putting this on, not God. God puts it in front of you and says, it's your choice to put it on. Notice what it says, put on the whole armor of God. It doesn't say put on a part of it, put on some of it, put on all of it. You have to put on all of it to function correctly in a spiritual battle. If not, if you decide not to wear a certain piece of the armor, that's where you're, you're gonna get hit and that's where they'll establish a beachhead in your life to mess with you. That you may be able to stand or resist against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil are the stratagems of the devil, the agenda of the devil. If you don't do this, Paul, what Paul is saying, then you will be vulnerable to the strategies of the devil. Look at the church how it has fallen under the strategies of the devil. Woke churches, right? Gay, gay marriage supporting churches, transgender supporting churches, right? All that stuff. Marxist supporting churches. Critical race theory in the church. That's people who haven't put on the armor of God and let it happen. So that whole thing has to be put on. And why? Because he says this, in, uh, Peter says this, be sober, be vigilant, uh, vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The concept is this, they are after you. They want you. And what do they want to do with you? They want to shut you up. 
The devouring has to do with your influence. They wanna stop your influence and shut you up and make you afraid to say anything. Otherwise, you'll have to deal with the repercussions of the lion. And by the way, the idea, because your adversary devil walks like a, like a roaring lion, do you understand you can hear in, in uh, a, a, a male lion roar five miles away? And the idea is you should already hear the roar of Satan before you're in the midst of the fight. You should already hear him signaling that he's looking to devour you. That's how you have to deal with spiritual warfare. That's how David is dealing with it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What he just gave you is saying, look, man, this is real deal stuff. These fallen angels are actually in ranks under Satan. And they categorically and systematically know what they're doing and are that organized to come against us, to destroy our influence, to wipe us out. So we're dealing with a whole host of creatures that we don't know how many there are but are wanting to stop us at every turn. That's the real fight. And no one wants to talk about it. I can't believe how many churches won't address demonic issues. They won't address spiritual issues. And I wanna say, he warns you, he, they're coming after you. They are targeting the Christian, especially the ones that believe in the Bible. This is what you're up against. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, which we're in, to resist in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now, the idea is this. The armor is for your protection to resist. So all you have to do is put on the armor and resist. Take your stand. Don't give any ground. That's what the armor allows you to do. It allows you to stand there and take it without running, without fleeing, without doing something stupid, manipulating. It allows you just to stand there, okay, if you put it on. Well, what is it? Well, I'm not gonna go too deep into this, but I just wanna talk briefly about this. There's several pieces of armor that are given to you. They're all, they all reach back to the Old Testament. So you look at, for instance, uh, you know, the belt of truth. That comes from Isaiah 11.5. The belt of truth is, the, is the, the belt that holds everything in its place, okay? So you start with the belt. The belt is the key. And what is the belt? The belt of truth. If you're not living in the truth, you can't fight a spiritual battle because where you get the power is from the truth. And so the first thing that we need to be cognizant of are we operating on the truth? Well, we have to know the Bible for that. Then you look to the other pieces, you know, the breastplate of righteousness. This comes from Isaiah 59, 7, 17. What is this? The breastplate of righteousness. It's twofold. It's positional righteousness and it's practical righteousness. What does that mean? Positional righteousness is what you are in Christ, Okay. You've been freed from sin. You've been freed in your will to choose to obey or not obey. It's who you are in Christ, your identity, that you're righteous 
in Christ. Practical righteousness, the second part of this, is how you're living. And here's the simple thing, just going back to uh, uh, punishing disobedience through our righteousness is how you're living in front of people curtails their evil activities. It punishes them for their evil activities. And so part of the breastplate of righteousness, you have to be living righteously, practically speaking. If you're living like the world, you're ineffectual. You don't, you're not using the shield. Let's move to the helmet of salvation. Isaiah 59, 17 is the other passage referring to the helmet of salvation. Let's take that for instance. The helmet of salvation has to do with your position in salvation, being in Christ, and practically speaking, your sanctification. It's both and. It's positional and practical. And the idea is this. You must know what Christ has done for you in salvation, and you work from that position of victory in practicality in your salvation as you work out your salvation in sanctification. Which means the only way you're going to get better in fighting this war is if you grow to become more like Christ in your sanctification. If you don't, you will be weak. And the helmet of salvation may not be put on because you don't know all the ramifications of your sanctification and what it entails. Let's use the, the, uh, the, the feet shod with the gospel of peace. Because this is armored, this is not necessarily referring to going out there and sharing in evangelism. This is all about spiritual warfare. So what does the feet mean? The, the shod with the gospel of peace. It has to do with a Roman soldier having hobnails on the bottom of his sandals which would be like a modern day cleat and gave them the stability to function in a war. The gospel of peace gives you stability in your footing as you function in this war. How so? You must know not only what the gospel uh, is, you must know what it does for you to have stability. So you know that Christ died, uh, uh, he, he, he was buried, resurrected, but what are the implications for that? What is that supposed to do in my life? Well, I'm saved unto good works. I'm saved so I can produce good works. And in doing those good works, I have stability because I'm doing those good works out of from being saved. I don't do good works to be saved. I do good works because I am saved and it produces in the life of the believer stability. But if you look at some believers and they have an unstable life, they're doing this, they're doing that, they're all over the place, is because they don't know the ramifications of the gospel and what they're actually supposed to be doing. You are called on a mission. You are to be doing your mission, using your gifts for that mission. If you're not, you're unstable. You don't know what you're to do. I don't know. I'm over here and I'm over there. I'm going to try this. No, no, no. If you knew what you've been saved for, you would know your task. That gives you stability. Let's look at, um, what else did we, uh, the shield of faith. The shield of faith. 
It's real simple. It comes from Genesis 15, 1. It comes from Proverbs 30, verse 5. And the shield of faith is none other than God. God says, I am your shield. How do you make God your shield? It's not an automatic because this has to be done. The shield of faith, which refers to God, is knowing all the aspects of God in what he will do for you when the devil sends his fiery darts to you. The devil will send all kinds of fiery darts to you. But if you do not know the scripture that would put out that dart, you will not be operating with the shield and it will come through you and hit you. So what we're dealing with is truth versus lies. The devil will throw lies to you and you have to know what body of truth goes to that lie. Like a shotgun approach. You have to know exactly. Because what you'll see with David is he will use one stone against Goliath. And he is not using a, a shotgun approach, but a rifle approach. And I, this is the point I want to make, because David is precise in why he is using a stone for Goliath. And that goes to the shield of faith. So if the devil tells you you're no account, uh, you're not worthy, you're this and that, you must know what the scriptures say in regards to rebut that truth, or that lie. With the truth. That's how you use the shield of faith. Now, how about this, this, the sword of, of, of the sword of the spirit? The sword of the spirit is the word of God. It is referring to a Roman uh, uh, short sword that is double bladed, double edged, and it's a, sh- a rather short one, and it's used for thrusting. Right? Not not a big uh, uh, crushing blow. It's used for thrusting or stabbing. Okay. We obviously know that this refers to the word of God in Hebrews chapter four, that it can pierce, this sword pierces the hearts of, of, of people. A, sword, a regular sword can pierce the heart of flesh, but it can't pierce the heart. This word of God is how you use the word of God to penetrate the people you're dealing with. Okay? This is, again, the only offensive weapon that you have in your arsenal is the word of God, but it takes wisdom in knowing what part of the word of God and when to apply it at the right time so that you can actually use it to pierce people's hearts. And what is the purpose of piercing someone's heart? To wake them up. To get the truth all the way down into their soul. So this takes a level of wisdom in using the sword. Some people have the sword and they don't know how to use it and they use it incorrectly and they can destroy people with it because the the sword is the truth. If you give the truth at the wrong time to the wrong people, it will cause damage and it will be rejected many times. So you have to use this short sword in the right situation at the right time. Again, how do you do that? You have to grow. You have to learn. You have to be wise. So that's a picture, a short picture of what he gives us. And he says, that's what you need to use. It's invisible armor. But if you use that, you'll be functioning in my power and you can have victory. Okay, let's go back to David. Then he took his staff in his hand And he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand. 
Let's unpack this. All that David takes into this fight are those which he finds from the natural world. He takes a rod or staff, which is a piece of wood. Again, the rod is for beating away enemies. This is a shepherd's rod for beating away enemies. So he takes that with him and he chooses five smooth stones from the brook, okay? Obviously, in practicality, he's gonna use the stones against Goliath, just like he did against the lion and the bear. He takes five because he knows he's not gonna, he's not gonna miss with Goliath. He knows that Goliath has four relatives that are giants as well, and he might have to take them on if he takes him out as well. So he picks up five for all of them. David's not thinking he's going to miss because he's relying on the power of God. But notice, every weapon he has is from the natural world, okay? Those stones that are smooth were not smoothed by human hands. Those stones rolled in this creek, and the creek and the water, the living water, because this is a brook and it has living water, the living water rolls that stone over and over again, hits and bumps up against other stones, and the water works on it to make the stone smooth. It is a natural effect, but it's a symbol of a, a weapon coming from God, not from man, that God created this, okay? Five of them, okay? We know because of Goliath's relatives, but let's get into the symbolic nature of this. This is a typology. Five smooth stones. When Jesus encounters Satan in the, in the temptation, Jesus will use the fifth book of the Torah. The fifth book is Deuteronomy. And in all three encounters, he responds precisely with a quote from Deuteronomy that goes against the lie coming from the devil. That's number five. Five also in, uh, is symbolized in the Hebrew culture, grace. This is God's grace by giving David these weapons to kill Goliath. It's all there. But notice it comes from a brook. A brook, it represents living water. It's not like water in a cistern. It, it's living water. And living water is a theme in the New Testament for salvation, okay? So all of this is coming from it. And by the way, the word brook, the noun in Hebrew, if you take it and put it in the verb form, the verb form which it comes from means inheritance. So when David takes these stones out of the living water, He's taking from his inheritance the stones. Inheritance from who? His inheritance from God. You take the stones out of the living water. Again, the verb form of the same word is inheritance. He takes his inheritance, what's given to him by God, and he's going to use his inheritance against Goliath. Just as God gives you an inheritance of the armor, you're to use the armor to fight the Goliaths in your life. Notice what he does. He puts them in a shepherd's bag and in a pouch which he had and the sling was in his hand. What is the idea of the shepherd's bag? The shepherd's bag is what he puts the rocks into, right? 
David will one day say in one of his Psalms that I've hidden your word in my heart. The bag, the shepherd's bag represents David's heart. He takes from the living water his inheritance and he puts it in his heart. David, when he was being trained as a shepherd boy, was meditating on the word of God. The word of God is operating in David because he has put the word of God in his heart. It's there. He knows how to access it. He knows how to take it out and use it because he has put it in him is the idea. Okay? Again, just to go on the archaeological site, if you ever go to Israel, there's where the the valley is. There's where the, the brook is. And that's the same brook he would have went to in Israel. And there's the little brook. You can see all the rocks there, still there today. And when you're there as a tourist, you can go and pick up the rocks so, and take one home with you. But they're all, it, usually the water runs during the rainy season. And so that's what, it, that's what that little brook is. Anyway, and he drew near to the Philistines. So the Philistines came, Philistine came and began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. Remember, uh, Goliath has a, uh, has a forerunner. Uh, a guy that helps him, kind of like the Antichrist has a false prophet, right? And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So now you have this disdaining of David because he's not a match for Goliath. But the disdaining is satanic because David, in the satanic world, they know he's the next king of Israel. So there's a major disdain on David. A major disdain because he's Jewish. A major disdain because he's a believer in Yahweh. And that's the same for you and I. These people that you are trying to reach disdain you. And yet our mission is to go reach them of those who hate you. That's how hard this is, right? It's a very hard task that we have been given. That Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. And yet he still reached out to them, didn't he? Amazing. That's why the task is very hard, because they disdain us. And he disdains David in this situation. So the Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He's referring to the rod. Now Goliath not only hates David, he's making fun of his weapons. The rod a natural thing to protect against enemies. The devil is mocking you and I right now. Brandon, do you really think truth is gonna win in this culture? Brandon, do you really think that the scriptures are gonna save you? Do you really think that the promises of God are gonna deliver you? You see the taunting? See, the way the culture is saying, yeah, that you guys use that old book. That's antiquated. It's not up to date with the modern world. It doesn't speak. You guys are nothing but like uh, fundamentalists or like Islamic terrorists holding on to that Bible, believing marriages between a man and a woman and that there's only two genders. You're way behind the signs of the times. It won't work in this culture. You see the, 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 the mocking of the, of the weapons? Same thing he's doing. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Come on, let's fight because I won't even give you a proper burial. The birds will eat your flesh. This was the most 
dishonorable thing you could possibly do to somebody in the ancient world is not bury them and let the birds eat their flesh. So that's what he's saying. This is, this is the hatred from Satan, okay? Again, he's a typology for the Antichrist, but you've got to see the hatred of Bible believers in this picture. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, the weapons of the world. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That's who my power is, not in my own authority, but in his authority. And you have defied him, so he will act upon you. It's kind of like what uh, Merle Haggard once said, when they're running down my country, man, they're walking on the fighting side of me. And what, that's what, kind of what David is saying. When you're, when you're running down my God, you're walking on the fighting side of me. It's true. It should be for every believer. You don't attack our God like that. Anyway, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. I'm gonna cut your head off, dude. And this day... This day, I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air. We're going to kill all of you. It ends today. And the idea is you're not going to receive burial. You said, I'm not going to receive burial. You're not going to receive burial. And the carcasses of the birds, uh, your carcasses will eat by the birds of the air. Why is that a big deal? Because it pictures the future. It pictures the future. What do you mean? Revelation 19, 17 through 18, reference to the second coming. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. What will happen to the Philistines is a picture of what Christ will do to the people of this world at the second coming. He will destroy them who are in rebellion to him and there will be a great feast in the land of Israel and all the birds of the world are gathered, called by the creator to go eat the flesh of them. It is the ultimate Middle East dishonoring of them. So this picture of David looks to the future. And he goes, and the wild beasts of the earth will eat you too, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This is for evangelism purposes. Everybody will hear about this story. Even today, they use the, the term David and Goliath all the time, right? All the earth knows about this story. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And that's the key concept. The fight that we're fighting is the Lord's fight. He's asking us to join him in the fight, but it is his fight. Satan is trying to dethrone God. That's what this is about, and we're caught up in the middle of this. And we have, he, we have been asked to join him in this battle. But it is the Lord's fight. We always have to recognize it. It's not our fight, it's his fight. Another proof of how it's the Lord's battle is the second coming. I want you to see in this text how it's Jesus' battle and no one else. I have trodden the winepress, what? Alone. And from the people, no one was with me. 
I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. But did you see this? Messiah saying, I did this by myself. It's my fight. I'm going to take care of business. When we're there watching this at the second coming, we're just bystanders. We just watch it. We watch what he does, but we have really no part. Again, proving that this battle is the Lord's. Your battle right now that you're fighting is the Lord's. It's not totally yours. You're responsible to play a part in it, but it's his. This battle versus good and evil. Anyway, I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered, and there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. And my own fury, it sustained me. I've trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought their, down their strength to the earth. And that's a reference to the second coming. He did it alone. Anyway, so it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran to the army to meet the Philistine. You notice the difference. David's running to him. He's wanting to take this guy on. He's not shying away. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. That's pretty smart. He's not gonna take him on one-to-one hand-to-hand combat. He's going to sling that stone that he got from the brook. Now, here's the thing. The estimate, they have, they have experimented with this, that the slings of that day could get up to 130 miles an hour with that ball coming off the sling, 130 miles an hour. To give you some perspective of how fast that is, I want you to see a top exit speed from a major league hitter, Okay. Also, his head, where it is. I think he just did it. I think he just did it. The timing is back. Yes, he did. That is the mammoth home run. Look at the exit speed. 39th of his career versus the Rangers. 115.5 miles per hour exit velocity. The timing there. The foot is down and the swing is back. And Lyles, just all you can do is look and see how far that baseball goes. For Trout, that's loud. 115 miles an hour off the bat. You see how hard Trout hit that? 130 miles an hour off of David's sling. It's faster than a major league home run. That's how fast it came off of David's sling. No wonder it knocked him out. No wonder. So the stone sank into the, his forehead. Of course it would at that exit speed and he fell on his face to the earth i mean it 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 must have made a bit it crushed his skull it came in so fast boom he's knocked out so it's kind of like with with this this i want to picture a a theme here it's anticlimactic he throws a stone the guy's down now it's over and and goliath basically brought a knife to a gunfight and every, every time I see this picture, it reminds me of a scene in a movie. You remember this in Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> That's what it reminds me of. That's all David did. 
Guy's messing with a sword, he's taunting him, throws out a sling, you're dead. It's in the story. It was so, it's so anticlimactic, right? Ah, yes, where am I going with this? The second coming is that anticlimactic as well. Yes, because when Messiah returns, the armies of the Antichrist are mounting up against them. They're pulling all their armies of the world to fight at Christ, fight against him. And he comes in with one breath, you're dead, boom, everyone dies. It's so anticlimactic. There's no big battle or anything. It's like, all right, you're dead, boom. And it's that it, that's it. And we move on from there. It, it, it's, it, it, the second coming is meant to show you why is it so anticlimactic? Because the power of God versus the forces of evil is no match. That's the idea here. Anyway, remember I told you he takes one stone and he sends it into Goliath's head. It's a typology of something. It's a typology of Daniel chapter two. The stone that was, cut out, uh, that was not cut out with human hands, that came from heaven, did what to the last standing Gentile empire? It came to destroy it. And the stone struck the image and it destroyed it to where there was nothing left. The stone that David's firing is a picture of Messiah destroying the kingdom of the Antichrist. Remember, Goliath is, the anti, is a typology of the Antichrist. So that stone that comes out is a picture of Daniel 2, that stone coming out and destroying that kingdom. It's a beautiful typology. So what is the stone? The stone is one and the same. It is the word of God. And who is the word of God? Jesus. That's who David used against Goliath was the Messiah, the stone of the Messiah. Again, why, why, uh, why is Jesus called the stone? Because it's always his name in the Old Testament. He is the stone, right? How about this? Why did David use a stone? Because he's following the Levitical law. When you have a blasphemer, what must you do? Stone him to death, Right? I mean, that's how detailed David is in following the law. He's got to be stoned, so I'm going to use one stone. We're going to stone him to death. That's why he threw a stone. He's following the law. Absolutely brilliant what David's doing. Notice this, though. It pictures the Messiah. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation of your, uh, with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. Habakkuk 3. This is all talking about the Messiah doing the same thing to the Antichrist. And notice the language. You struck the head, right? And then laying bare the foundation to the neck. You cut off its head like David did. It's a picture of Jesus. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and took over, over the Philistine, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out in its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Huh. And when the Philistines saw that their, their champion was dead, they fled. 
Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistine as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the, the road of Sharaim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. So they're wiped out. And David, this is the last one. I want you to watch this. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. This is before he took Jerusalem, uh, sorry, after he took Jerusalem, but put his armor in his tent. That's interesting. We do know that David took Goliath's sword and kept it with the temple in, with the priests. But he also eventually, once he took uh, over Jerusalem, he brought Goliath's head from his tent. He had Goliath's head with him the whole time. Kind of gross right? So here's Goliath's head in his tent rotting, you know, but eventually he took Goliath's head to Jerusalem and they put it in Jerusalem. So you had Goliath's sword in, in, the, in the temple precincts and then you had Goliath's head buried outside of the walls of Jerusalem. What's the big deal? Why are you telling me this, Brandon? Because of the name Golgotha. Catching on to something? Golgotha is a, 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 a combination of possibly two words. And over time, you know how more words morph. The first one is they used to call the area Golgoliath. Golgoliath means the heap or the mound or whatever, uh, you know, like a hill or something like that. Then you have a possible rendering of Goliath of Gath. That's where he was from, Goliath of Gath. And eventually the word, either these two words morphed into Golgotha. And it's translated in your Bible, the place of the skull. Whose skull? Why is Golgotha called the place of the skull? Oh, do you see this? Goliath's head was buried there by David in Golgotha, in this area. The good chance, right in front of that thing, is a bus station. And it's a good chance that's where Messiah was crucified. Now, what does Messiah being crucified have to do with the head of Goliath? You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. What did I say Goliath represents? The Antichrist. It couldn't be that, that, that. No, no, it couldn't be that beautiful. It is that beautiful. Messiah dies in the very place where Goliath's head was buried by David thousands of years ago to symbolize the crushing of the serpent's head of Genesis 3.15. And that's exactly what happened. They struck Messiah on the heel and Messiah crushed the head of the serpent represented by Goliath's 
head in that very same place. Wow, can it be that intersecting and that, yeah, because you can't make that up. You can't make that up, right? That absolutely blows my mind. So somewhere in Israel, Goliath's head is buried over there. And Jesus had his victory on the cross right there and crushed his head. Isn't that amazing? That's beautiful, man. We got to run. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn today with David and Goliath. What an epic battle. The battle is yours. You fight it. We're along for the ride, but we're willing to join it. Give us the strength to be in this battle, to fight as hard as we need to fight and realize that we draw our power from you. We draw our weapons of warfare from you and help us to use them, Father. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.